Let's just pray before we start. Father, <clears throat> we ask that as we turn to your word, that you'll give us real clarity of thought. Father, we pray that you'll unravel it for us, that it will make sense. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will come amongst us now and be our teacher. And Lord, that we will know and understand the things that you want us to know and understand. Lord, just make us more aware all the time of how wonderful Jesus is and what exactly he's done for us. And Lord, tonight we pray that we'll just have a greater confidence in him than we had before we came here. Because, Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, well, we come now to the 20th talk in our series on salvation. And uh, what we're dealing with in this phase, the third phase, as you all remember, is that we're looking at what I've called future salvation, and i.e. the fact that we're Christians, what therefore does the future hold for us? Now, the last two or three studies have centred around the whole question of what happens when you die. All right, and we've been covering that in detail. And in order to do that, last time we had our first talk, because tonight is the second, we had our first talk on the whole thing about the rapture of the church, when Jesus returns and we get glorified bodies, etc., etc. So if, you're, if you haven't heard that, then get hold of the tape. But tonight, for the second talk, we're going to, in a sense, go slightly off of our subject. Because in order to really understand the rapture, we've got to deal with the timing of it. Now, don't expect me to give you the date. This, this isn't quite what I mean when I say the timing of it. But what I want to do is to show you the relationship between the rapture, remembering the rapture when Jesus returns he, and he takes the church back to heaven and we get glorified bodies. I want to show you the relationship between that event, the rapture of the church, and the eventual second coming of Jesus. Because what we are going to go on in the next two or three studies after this one is to see what is happening to us after the rapture, i.e. when Jesus comes and takes us back to heaven, what happens next? So tonight, what we've got to do is to establish very, very clearly that the rapture is in fact a completely different event to the second coming. Because, of course, as we're going to see tonight, the time is coming when Jesus will return to earth physically and establish his kingdom on the earth. I want to show you the relationship of the rapture or that initial coming of Jesus to the eventual second coming of Jesus. Now, in order to do that, we're going to cover some uh, not complicated ground, but, I mean, you're going to have to get your brains into gear, all right? So if you haven't already, work on that now. Get the old ignition key turning. Because it's one of those things that in order to understand it, I, I'm going to be chucking at you a few principles. And it's when you grasp the principles that the facts around them will become clear. Now, what you need to grab onto, just at this precise moment, is this. As you read the Old Testament, you may have noticed in doing it that there is no mention of the church whatsoever. You can start in Genesis and end in Joel, or whatever the last book of the Old Testament is, can't remember offhand. Malachi, thank you. 
I'm the Bible teacher around here, thank you. And, you, and th throughout the whole Old Testament, you will find no mention of the church whatsoever. Now, if you turn to Ephesians 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and I just want to read something that Paul writes. And it's him talking about the, the fact that God had called him to be a minister, a servant of the gospel. And what he says in verse 8 is this. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make known and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, Paul is talking here about a mystery that has been revealed in God throughout the ages and that is about to be revealed. And it's this, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now, in the Bible, every now and then you hit this phrase, mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. And that what is meant by it, it's not like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. In a Sherlock Holmes mystery, you have to work out what the mystery is. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it's not talking about something that is hidden and you've got to discover it. The Bible always talks about something that has been hidden thus far, but is now clearly revealed. You don't have to go looking for a biblical mystery, it is explained to you. And what Paul is saying here is that throughout the ages, God had this mystery. Something that he'd hidden, that he wasn't going to let anyone know about until the right time came. And this particular mystery was the church of Jesus Christ. Only the Lord himself knew about it. And until the ministry of Jesus, until that time it was absolutely hidden, it was only through Jesus and the apostles that this secret, this mystery was revealed and the church came into being. So therefore, in the Old Testament, you have nothing whatsoever about the church of Jesus Christ. Because the Old Testament deals with a covenant or an agreement or a bargain in the vernacular. A bargain that God struck with the nation of Israel. Now, we are not the nation of Israel. And the bargain that God struck with Israel doesn't apply to us at all. It's got nothing to do with us. We're not Israelites. We're Gentiles. Whereas in the New Testament we're going to see, what happens then is that God lays aside the bargain he struck with Israel and he strikes up a new bargain with a new group of people, most of whom were Gentiles, i.e. the church. So therefore, because the Old Testament is God's bargain with Israel, therefore you will find nothing about the church in it whatsoever. And also, that means, you will find nothing in the Old Testament that pertains to the church. You see? Because if the church is hidden in the Old Testament, so are the details about it. So therefore, as I'm going to, say, to, to show you, don't expect to find the rapture in the Old Testament, because the rapture pertains to the church. Now then, what I'm going to show you tonight, and bear that principle in mind, is this that in actual fact the rapture of the church is immediately prior to what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. 
the great tribulation being the upheaval of the world and the arising of the Antichrist leading his world system. And that I'm going to show you that the truth of the matter is that it's the rapture of the church that kicks off the great tribulation. The great tribulation cannot begin until the rapture of the church, the removal of the church, has taken place. But, when we come to talking about the great tribulation, I'm going to show you that the Great Tribulation is in the Old Testament. And the reason that the Great Tribulation is prophesied in the Old Testament is because the Great Tribulation is something to do with Israel. It's nothing to do with the church whatsoever. It's something to do with the Jewish nation. So therefore, the Great Tribulation is in the Old Testament because that pertains to Israel, alright? But the rapture isn't because that pertains to the church. And of course the great tribulation as we're going to see is this. It's the great tribulation, the seven years of the Antichrist and the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth that leads up to the coming of the Jewish Messiah to earth to establish the Jewish kingdom or the kingdom of God as it's known in the Bible, and it is that which restores Israel fully to the promised land. The truth of the matter is that all God's promises to Abraham and to Moses, they have never been fulfilled. Israel has never in its history inherited the land that God promised them. It's yet future. It's something that is going to happen in the future. If you go to Jeremiah, let me show you where we have mention of what we're going to call the Great Tribulation in the Old Testament. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And we'll start reading from verse 1. Now, we're going to be reading a few Old Testament scriptures tonight. Uh, if you can't keep up, don't worry. All right? I, I, I won't wait for you. We'll be here all night because I know that some of you are a little bit slow. Right, okay. I've got that off my chest now. Now then, Jeremiah 30, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from... Actually, someone said to me the other day that they'd heard, like, a little thingy that I've been doing. I've been sort of doing a teaching thing. And they said it went in one ear and out the other. And I said, well, in that case, there can't be anything in the middle to stop it, can there? <laughs> right, so, 15 love. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah and I will bring them back to the land which I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. So now listen to this. Thus says the Lord. Remember, the context of this is the restoration of Israel. It's the second coming, what we know to be the second coming. We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hand on his loins like a woman in labour? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great that there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. Yet, 
he shall be saved out of it. Now notice that, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a Jewish affair. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke from their neck, I will burst their bonds, and strangers shall no more make servants of them. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So there you have it, this time of great trouble that's going to come upon Israel, tied in with the second coming of the Lord. Go now to Ezekiel. Sorry, Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel is after Ezekiel, directly after Ezekiel. <clears throat> and verse 1. <clears throat> At that time shall arise Michael, that, that's the archangel Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Now, God is saying this to Daniel, Daniel was a Jew, his people were the Jews, this is Israel. There shall be a time of trouble such as never such... I'll say that again. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name is written in the book of life. There you have it again. A prophecy that a time of trouble is going to come upon Israel unlike anything the world has ever seen before, but it's tied up with the coming of the Jewish Messiah and the deliverance of the people of Israel. All right. Now then, it's also from a prophecy in Daniel 9, which we haven't got time to go into, but from the prophecy of what's called the 70 weeks, you can actually work out from that prophecy that this time span that's going to be the Great Tribulation, in fact, lasts for seven years. And one day, I promise, we will do a series which will be given over to this whole subject. We're touching it as it relates to the question of salvation, past, present and future. But one day, we will do a series here, and we shall go into this in greater detail. So, we've seen, thus far, there's no mention of the church in the Old Testament, therefore there's no mention of the rapture, alright, because the Old Testament is God's dealings with Israel, not with the church. The church is a Gentile affair. But we've seen that the Great Tribulation, and it's from the prophecy of Daniel as well, that we know that it's in the Great Tribulation that this Antichrist figure emerges. And we've seen that the Tribulation is in the Old Testament because that is to do with Israel. So what we're seeing thus far is this. The Great Tribulation and the Antichrist has nothing to do with the Church whatsoever. It is an Israeli event. It's to do with the covenant that God has with Israel and not the bargain, the agreement that God has struck up with the Church. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at other prophecies in the Old Testament and we're going to ask this question. What did the Old Testament teach about the coming of Messiah and the judgment of the world? Remember, Israel was expecting, all the time still is, that their Messiah would come and would establish his kingdom on the earth. Judgment would be carried out on the unbelievers and believers, Israel, will be established in the land of Canaan. Now, the only difference is this. As far as the Jews are concerned, that was going to be the only coming of Messiah. But we know that the truth of the matter is that this thing, the establishment of Messiah's kingdom, is going to be a second coming. Because Messiah has come once and gone. 
Jesus has already been and gone. So everything that Israel was expecting to be the only coming of Messiah, we know, in fact, that it's going to be the second coming of Messiah. But we're going to look into the Old Testament, and we're going to find out what the Old Testament taught about this coming of Messiah. And in doing that, we will understand as well the beliefs of Israel about this coming of Messiah at the time of Jesus and also we will gain an understanding of what the disciples understanding of the whole thing was and that's going to be important a little bit later on go to Ezekiel it should be in Daniel Ezekiel is just before <clears throat> now I'm going to read various passages of scripture don't worry if you get lost you can get hold of the tape Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 33 as I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers, so I will enter into judgment with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will let you go in by number. Now, get this, I will purge out the rebels from among you, and those who transgress me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Now notice that, the rebels, the unbelievers, God said at that time, the establishing of the kingdom, I will purge them out from among you. Go to Zechariah, which is a little bit later on in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 12, <clears throat> starting at verse 1. We'll start at verse 2. This is God speaking. Lo, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling. Notice Jerusalem. This is Israel. To all the nations round about, it will be against Judah also in the siege against Jerusalem. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it shall grievously hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will come together against it. On that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But upon the house of Judah I will open my eyes when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the peoples round about, while Jerusalem shall still be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give victory to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be exalted over that of Judah. On that day the Lord will put a shield around the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, and the angel of the Lord at their head. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Israel. Alright, now then, if you go down into chapter 13, verse 2, On that day 
I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more and also I will remove from the land the prophets and the unclean spirits. Goes verse 8. In the whole land, says the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now then, if you go over into chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Now we'll, we'll read verse 4. On that day his feet, now this is the Messiah, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives which lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. Now I'm going to give you these scriptures, write them down, alright, because I, I don't want to end up reading too much. But if you, uh, Ezekiel, sorry, Zechariah 14 verses 12 to 16 and Joel chapter 3. Now, when you put all those together, you get the following picture from the Old Testament of the events that are going to occur when Messiah comes to earth and establishes the kingdom. You have this. At that time, the nations of the world, the Gentile nations, are going to be brought against Jerusalem in battle to try and exterminate the Jews. That is the time known as Jacob's Trouble or the Great Tribulation. It is the time of the Antichrist or what the Old Testament calls the Abomination of Desolation. All right, This is the time of the Antichrist. Jerusalem comes near or Israel comes near to being completely destroyed. As that is happening at the end of this period of tribulation and the attempt of the Antichrist to gather all the nations of the world with him to destroy Israel, at that point Messiah would return and he would land on the Mount Olives, what we know to be the second coming. And when Messiah arrived he would gather the nations of the world to him and he would enter into judgment with them. What would happen then is that the Lord would purge out from among them, destroy out from among them the rebels and the unbelievers. And in fact we're going to see that that is what Jesus meant by the sheep and the goats judgment. We'll see that in his teaching in a few moments. And with all the unbelievers having been removed, having been killed by Messiah when he lands on the earth, the believers are left and they go through into the restored world to repopulate the earth during the reign of Messiah, the kingdom of God. When Messiah is reigning himself on the earth, and we know from the New Testament that that lasts for a period of a thousand years. But the main point that I want you to get is this. When the Old Testament teaches about this whole thing of Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom and entering into judgment with a sinful world, the principle that the Old Testament gives us is this. It is always the case that unbelievers are removed from the earth 
and believers are left. Now, can you see that principle? When Messiah comes and enters into judgment with the world, we've seen the principle is that unbelievers are taken, and it's believers who are left remaining on the earth. Now, let's go into the New Testament and to see this exact same principle confirmed again and again by Jesus. We're largely going to be in Matthew for the next moment or two. And if you find initially chapter 13... Matthew chapter 13. And in verses 24 to 30, we have a parable that Jesus gives. He says, the kingdom of heaven... Now, when you get in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven, it's a synonym for the kingdom of God. Alright? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, how do you... Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it weeds? And he said, An enemy has done this. The servants said, Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. Now if you go down to verse 36, Jesus explains the imagery. Verse 37. He who sows, this is Jesus speaking, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word. The good seed means the sons of the kingdom. Believers, people who get saved, believe on Jesus. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Unbelievers, people who don't believe in Jesus. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Because the world is Satan's world. He's the God of this world. The harvest is the close of the age, the coming of Messiah. All right. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire. Now, can you see what Jesus is teaching there? Again, the same thing. When Messiah comes, establishes his kingdom, it's unbelievers who are taken away and removed. It is believers who are left. Go now to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. There's a parallel passage to this in Luke 17, but we're interested in Matthew 24. Now go down, first of all, to verse 36. Let's have a look at the context of all this. Verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is talking about the coming of Messiah to establish his kingdom. Now look what happens. As were the days of Noah, so will it be for the coming of the Son of Man. And that what happens here is this. The context, if you just go quickly back to verse 15, we read this. When you see the desolating sacrilege, now we know that to be the Antichrist, and in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the context here is the coming of Messiah after the great tribulation. And what Jesus does is he likens it to the time of Noah. Can you see that? As were the days of Noah. Now why does he do that? 
What happened at the time of Noah? Well, I'll tell you. A flood came, and what did it do? It removed all the unbelievers. Can you see? The unbelievers were taken. It was the believers who were left. All right. And in Luke, the parallel passage, Luke adds, he records a bit of Jesus' teaching here that Matthew missed, and that Jesus also gave the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what happened at the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? The unbelievers were taken. They were killed. It was the believers, Lot and his family, who were left. So then, go down into verse 40. That then two men, now this is the coming of Jesus establishing his kingdom on earth, what we know to be the second coming. The first obviously being when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken and one is left. Now here's the point. You must understand this about that verse. That has got nothing to do with rapture. Because remember, we're seeing at the coming of Messiah, it is unbelievers who are taken. It is believers who are left alive on the earth. Therefore, in Jesus' te teaching here, the people who are taken when Jesus comes back to earth are the unbelievers. It's the believers who are left because they repopulate the earth during the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Now then, go down to the end of Matthew 25, which is the next chapter. And here we have this, what Jesus called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Let's, um, let's have a look at it. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this whole section, Matthew 24 and 25, is the second coming. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Now this word nations here is the Greek word for the Gentile nations. So all the Gentile nations gather before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Now what you've got here is that the goats, as we're going to see, are unbelievers and the sheep are believers. So when Jesus comes, you've got two groups of people. You've got believers and unbelievers. Alright, so we've got the unbelievers who are goats and the believers who are sheep. Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. Now then, the way that Jesus establishes who are Christians and who aren't is fascinating is absolutely fascinating because he goes through this thing about you saw me naked but you didn't clothe me you were I was hungry but you didn't feed me and and the unbelievers they say we never saw you naked that's not us we never neglected you Lord we didn't even know who you were and Jesus said if you fail to do it to the one of the least of these brethren you fail to do it to me and the believers are established because they did do all that to Jesus's brethren now here's the point who are the brethren of Jesus Jesus is a Jew Israel are Jesus's brethren who is it who's coming in for the roughest time in this seven-year tribulation the Jews because Satan through the Antichrist and the armies of the world is trying to kill all the Jews alright therefore who are the only group of people who are going to help the Jews I'll tell you Gentile Christians Gentile believers and they will help the Jews because the teaching of Jesus is that we must love his people Israel can you see that 
So the point is the Christians are identified because their faith turned into works and their works were that they alone protected the Jews and they did so at the risk of their very lives. And I mean one's only got to read the story of Corrie ten Boom during the Second World War and you see that principle lived out in the lives of believers. So therefore what we've got here is that the goats are the unbelievers, the sheep are believers. And Jesus knows who the believers are because they've got transformed lives. They're different from the unbelievers. They love Israel. They love everyone. And they put their lives on the line in order to protect God's people. Now here's the point. If you go down into verse 40 and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, these are the unbelievers, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. What do we have? We have the unbelievers taken, and the believers are left. Alright? So, therefore, here's what you've got to understand. The teaching of the Old Testament and confirmed by the ministry of Jesus was this. When Messiah comes to establish his kingdom on earth, the principle is that unbelievers are taken off the earth, they're killed, and it is the believers who are left. Now just hold on to that, we'll be back to it in a few moments. So then, where is the rapture of the church in all this? Well, of course it isn't, because we've seen that the church is a mystery. It's not in the Old Testament, you see. And when Jesus was preaching to Israel, he was preaching to them Old Testament stuff. Alright, so therefore, don't expect to find the rapture. It's not going to be there. Now, we've got to understand why this is, and now we've got to understand the position that Israel is in as God's people. And it's this. You see, the problem was Israel blew its chance. God's intention always was that in preparing Israel as a nation, first Jesus was born through Israel, the idea that God had in having a people of his own was to bring salvation to the earth. This was to be through two ways. Firstly, that there was a nation that the Saviour, the Rescuer, could be born into, and Jesus was a Jew, so salvation came through Israel. But also that Israel, by its its example and its knowledge of God would bring the message of salvation to the entire world. Therefore God's plan was that Israel was to be the means of salvation coming to the whole earth including the Gentiles as well. So the whole of the Old Testament was preparing Israel to receive its Messiah and the Old Testament told them of the glories of what was going to happen one day when Messiah came to rescue Israel and his kingdom was going to be established. So 2,000 years ago Messiah came and what happened was this. You see if Israel as a nation had received Jesus as their Messiah 2,000 years ago, shall I tell you what would have happened? You would never have needed a second coming. And the reason you wouldn't is because God wanted to establish his kingdom 2,000 years ago. It was always his intention for the kingdom to come to Israel. So therefore, if Israel had received Jesus as their Messiah 2,000 years ago, the kingdom would be established and Jesus would have been reigning on the earth ever since. But of course the problem was this, Israel rejected Jesus. They rejected him. 
As John says, he came to his own people and his own people received him not. Therefore, because Israel refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah and because God honours everyone's free will, there was no way that Israel as a nation could any longer be the channel or the means of salvation to the rest of the world. So what we're going to see is this. God said, because he's a God of judgment, he's a God of justice, he said, you have rejected me, therefore I am going to reject you. And what he did was this. When he rejected Israel as his means of salvation to the world, when he rejected them, he said, well, I can't be without a means of salvation to the world, I'm going to have to use somebody else. And God rejected Israel and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the Gentiles and I'm going to use them instead. And what happened was this. The church for 2,000 years has been here to fill in and to replace the nation of Israel as the means of bringing salvation to the world. Now, you see, the thing is, one of God's attributes is foreknowledge. It means simply this, God knows everything. And if he knows everything, that means everything there is to know, out, you know in all of time, past, present and future. Therefore, God knows what's going to happen before it happens. Uh, that doesn't mean that everything that happens, happens because God foreknew that it would. God doesn't make everything happen necessarily he just knows what is going to happen so God always knew that Israel was going to re going to reject Jesus as their Messiah and that God wouldn't be able to establish the kingdom at that time this is just another way a, a, a rather theological way God's foreknowledge and all that is saying that God doesn't get caught short all right he knew all along exactly what was going to happen and therefore from the beginning of eternity he had his contingency plan and can you see the church was God's contingency plan to make up for the lack that Israel was going to cause him. I.e. Israel rejecting Jesus left a spiritual vacuum in the world. No means of saving the world. Therefore, God filled that vacuum with the Gentiles and he called it the church. All right. So what we've got is this. The Jews rejected Jesus. So the Lord said, right, you've rejected me, I reject you, I'm now going to replace you with the church. And it had been a mystery all through the ages. And it was only when Jesus came that this mystery contingency plan, best guarded secret in eternity, was finally revealed. Let's see this. Go to the beginning of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. <coughs> And again we have Jesus speaking. This was the centurion who came to Jesus. Now listen to what Jesus says. Even in Israel, I have not found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, Israel, will be thrown into outer darkness. Now Jesus is saying, my goodness, he says it's the Gentiles who have got faith around here, not Israel. And he says, I'm telling you Israel, there are going to be Gentiles who will sit in the kingdom while you are cast outside of it. Go to Matthew 21. 
And in verse 33, and this is a parable that Jesus told about a householder who, who planted a vineyard, you see. And um, he goes away. The bloke who hires the vineyard, who buys it, goes away. And he leaves his servant to look after it. After a few years, he comes back and he thinks, it's time I got the fruits of my labour in that vineyard. You know, I'll, I'll get the old fruit and make a bob or two, you see. So, so he sends his servants, and, and, and the people who are looking after the vineyard, when the servants of the master, you know, a servant comes up, they kill him. And, you know, the bloke hears about this, and it's a bit odd, I'm only sending them to get what's mine. They keep killing my servants. Eventually, the master sent his son, and they killed him as well. Now listen to what Jesus says. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now understand this, in the Old Testament, Israel was considered to be God's vineyard. It's talking about Israel. Now go down into verse 40, 42. Jesus said, Have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? I.e. he says, You're going to reject me, but I'm the very way of the kingdom being established. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. And the word nation there is Gentiles. Here Jesus is saying, look Israel, you're going to lose the kingdom and you're going to be replaced by the Gentiles. Go over now into Luke and Luke chapter 13. Verse 6. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Fig trees, vineyards. What's the symbolism there from the Old Testament? Fig trees, vineyards, they all represented the nation of Israel, the kingdom of God. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I've come seeking fruit on this tree and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on manure. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Now get the picture. Here, Jesus is in his third year of ministry. Now, let's go through this again. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I've come seeking fruit and I find none. Cut it down. This is God. This is God the Father. He says, three years I've had you there, Jesus. I'm trying to find fruit amongst my people. They're not accepting me. He says, let's be shot of them. And Jesus is the man. And he says, let it alone. Give it another year. And he says, if at the turn of next year there's still no fruit, then you can cut it down. Now, what had happened at the end of the following year? Jesus had been crucified. And Jesus had been totally rejected. Can you see, this is Jesus predicting that the vineyard was going to be cut down. It was going to be wiped out. God was going to replace his nation of Israel. Remember also, that time when Jesus withered the fig tree? He saw no fruit on it, and he cursed it, and it withered. That was a parable to Israel. 
He says, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to reject me, and you're going to be cursed. And Israel's history ever since has been the cursing of that fig tree they've withered. All right. So then, we've seen that Israel was rejected by God because they rejected him. They've been replaced by us, the Gentiles, the church. Does that therefore mean that the Jews have had it? Let me say that most Christians would say yes, they have. The Bible doesn't say that. No way has Israel had it at all. Because the point is this. Remember, we are a contingency plan. We are a gap filler. Alright? You know these little chocolate bars you get to fill a gap? That's us. Alright? I mean, we're kind of God's whisper to the world. That's all. And we're filling the gap at the moment. But the time is going to come when Israel is going to come back in. And the truth of the matter is this. You see, when God came amongst them in Jesus as their Messiah, offering to establish the kingdom, he came and he gave them years of love. Because Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it. He came bringing them love. And it didn't work. It didn't work. In the ministry of Jesus, God held out his hand and beseeched Israel. It didn't work. Do you know what is going to work? I'll tell you. It's going to be the tribulation. Because during the tribulation, Israel are going to suffer so greatly that what God's ministry of love didn't achieve in them, his ministry of suffering to them in the tribulation will. And what Jesus failed to accomplish, do you know who is going to accomplish in Israel? The Antichrist is going to accomplish it. If you go to Daniel, back to Daniel, chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12 and let's read verse 7 now we've already seen that this is speaking in the context of the great tribulation and Messiah coming to establish his kingdom and in verse 7 we read this the second part and I heard him swear by him who lives forever that it will be for a time, two times and half a time. Now, that is simply a way, I haven't got time to go into it, it's three and a half years. A time, one year, two times, two years, plus half a time, half a year, three and a half years. Because the tribulation is a seven year period between the rapture and the second coming. And it is only in the middle of the tribulation that things go bad. The Antichrist leads world peace and everyone, you know, sort of hails him as the new Messiah. But then he turns and halfway through, the, the, the destruction comes upon the world in an unimaginable way. Alright. Now then, listen to what happens at that time. And when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be accomplished. Now, the, all these things are the establishing of the kingdom. Now, in the Hebrew, it says the shattering of the power of the holy people. The shattering of the power, it means will. The Hebrew word means will. The breaking of the will of the holy people. Who are the holy people? Israel. And can you see, Israel have been stubborn. 2,000 years worth of being stubborn against Jesus. But they're going to get such a, a, a thrashing in the tribulation 
that that is going to break their stubborn wills and they will turn to Jesus and they will eventually receive him as their Messiah and then they will be saved and during the tribulation because remember when the rapture comes zap all the believers the church go to heaven no one left who's a Christian no one left who knows Jesus no salvation for the world and in Revelation which is chapter 5 onwards in Revelation is a blow-by-blow -blow account of the tribulation it's not a difficult book, it's a doddle of a book. It's a blow-by-blow -blow account of the Great Tribulation leading up to the Second Coming. And what's the first thing that happens? 144,000 Jews get miraculously converted. They realize Jesus is their Messiah and they re-evangelize the world in that seven years. Can you see Israel is grafted back in? Salvation comes to the world and Israel eventually believes on Jesus because of the whacking they get from the Antichrist and therefore Israel is completely saved as we've already seen in Zechariah. And therefore the millennium, the thousand year reign of Jesus on earth is the kingdom of God for Israel as prophesied throughout the Old Testament but the good thing is that the Gentiles have a place in it but it is preeminently a Jewish affair because God having rejected his people then he brings them back in and he accepts them back again go into Romans 11 and we'll see where Paul is dealing with this and where he speaks about it Romans 11 1 to 5 he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Paul's saying, does this mean that God's finished with Israel full stop? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleased with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed the prophets, etc., etc. But what is God's reply? I've kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of work. So what Paul is saying, of course God hasn't finished with Israel. He says, for a start, there are loads of Jews in the church anyway. So he says there's a remnant of Israel who are part of the church. They're believers. No problem. But look what he goes on to say. Verse 11. I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? He's saying, has Israel rejected Jesus and that's it, the end of Israel full stop? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation came to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if the trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Can you see? Paul's expecting that they're going to come back. Verse 17. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews, and you, a wild olive shoot, that's us, the Gentile church, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it's not you that support the root, the roots that support you. You will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. So therefore, the point is that God is going to graft these branches back in. Verse 24, if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So here you have Paul saying quite clearly, no, Israel isn't finished. 
the church is an interim measure and one day Israel is going to be restored back to her rightful place as God's means of salvation to the world and Israel is going to be fully included in salvation again. Right, so having got that, let's move on now and actually see Jesus' teaching about the rapture. Because what I'm going to do is to demonstrate to you now that the rapture of the church is immediately before this great tribulation. And from what we have seen, this must be so. If the great tribulation leading up to the coming of Messiah is the beginning of Israel being brought back into the plan that God originally had. We've seen the church, we have replaced Israel temporarily. One day Israel is going to be back. Israel will be doing what she failed to do, but one day she will be fully back. Therefore, given that we've simply replaced her, and given that Israel is going to be serving God properly again one day, what does that mean? I'll tell you, the replacement has got to be removed before the original can start operating again. Can you see that? For Israel to be brought back in, the church, which has merely filled in, has got to be got out of the way. And it's the rapture which gets us lot out of the way so that Israel can come back in and get on with the business. Alright? But we have got to be got out of the way first. Now, bearing that in mind, let's go to John 14 and I'll show you the teaching of Jesus about the rapture. We've seen his teaching about the second coming. Let's see his teaching about the rapture. And when we go through this, remember the following. Jesus is here speaking to his disciples. The disciples are part of the church. The New Testament revelation. But their education has been in the Old Testament. Everything that we have thus far seen. So bear that in mind. They had an Old Testament education. They have been taught that when Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom, unbelievers are taken and believers are left. They know nothing about the rapture or the church because it was a mystery. It is only now being revealed to them. Now John, 15, John 14, let's look at verse 2. This is Jesus speaking to them. In my Father's house are many rooms... If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So, Jesus is here saying to them, obviously his father's house is heaven. And Jesus is saying to them that he is going to go and he's going to be preparing a place for them in heaven. Now, you've, you've got to picture this. They scratch their heads Thomas probably picked his nose. I, I just get that feeling about Thomas. But the rest of them, they scratch their heads because there's something... Sorry about that. There's, there's something here that doesn't tie up because according to everything that they have been taught, they weren't expecting a place in heaven. They were expecting a place on earth. Let's go to verse 3. And this is Jesus. He says, and when I go and prepare a place for you, he says, oh, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. I will come again. And they think, oh, ooh, second coming. They think, oh, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, 
You see, the thing is, this isn't the second coming. They're really scratching their heads now. Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back for you. And they think, well, we know that. We know that, you see. So we've, we've done all our Old Testament homework and we know that you're going to establish your kingdom one day. And, and, and it's not that. And the reason it's not that is this. It's because in the second advent, they knew full well that believers remained on earth. Here, Jesus is saying, you're not going to be on the earth because when I come at this coming, I'm going to take you back to heaven. Can you see, they are really puzzled. Because their whole education was that when Messiah comes to the earth, what we now know to be the second coming, all the unbelievers are taking, the believers are left. Jesus is now saying to them, as believers, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you away. You are going to be taken, the unbelievers are left. And the reason they're scratching their heads is because this is totally new. This is a coming of Jesus that has only just been revealed. And we see that, by and large, the whole area of the second coming comprises of two comings. The first one being the rapture. Now, can you see, in verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, and he's sort of picking away, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're, where you're going, how can we know the way? And can you see, he's going skits here. Because they have no knowledge of this from the Old Testament whatsoever. It's a totally new revelation. And can you see that here Jesus is telling them about the rapture? Because here we've got a coming of Jesus when unbelievers are going to be left and the believers are taken. Now can you see the coming that Jesus is speaking about here is not the second coming. Because at the second coming, Messiah lands on the earth, he stays on earth with the believers, and it's the non-Christians who are removed. This coming, he's going to remove all the non-believers, all the believers, and it's the non-Christians who are going to be left. It's a totally different thing. And of course, what happens then is this. Because we have the rapture of the church, then Israel's prophetic clock, as it were, starts ticking again. Because God at some point has got to get the church out of the way before he can graft Israel back in and use them again. So can you see very, very clearly that when people say that the church goes through the tribulation, they are totally misunderstanding what this whole thing about the tribulation is. We have seen the church cannot possibly be going through the great tribulation because the church is removed before it happens. There is a removal of the church before the great tribulation. Alright, therefore there's no way that the church goes through this time of the great tribulation. And we're just going to see in a few moments that the only really serious alternative to this is that some people say that the rapture is at the same time as the second coming. So that what happens when you get the second coming, the church is raptured, boom, we go up and meet Jesus on his way down and then immediately come back down with him. Now we're seeing that that cannot possibly be the case at all. Because at the rapture, that coming of Jesus, the church goes back to heaven with him. Let's just go through a few scriptures now that in the light of what I've said are going to show you that this is absolutely the case. If you go first of all to 2 Thessalonians. Now the Thessalonians were a really sort of helpful bunch for us because what had happened 
was that Paul had spent a lot of time with them teaching them about all these things. And then some false teachers got in and taught them a load of squit, you see. So therefore, Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church are full of all the information that we need about it. And it's really, it's really good oak. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, we're going to read the first four verses. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him. Now, do you remember? Our assembling in the air. This is the rapture. He says, We beg you, brethren not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now what's happened here, alright, is that the day of the Lord we can now establish from the scriptures is what? It's the seven years of the tribulation with the second coming and the judgment of the world. So the day of the Lord is seven years of tribulation and the coming of Jesus to earth. Alright? So therefore, what we've got here is that the Thessalonians are getting all kind of hot and bothered. And they're wondering, you see, because they've had false teachers. And these false teachers have come in. And do you know what they've said? They've said, um, you know, sort of, this is the, we are in the tribulation now. Sorry, lads, you've, you've kind of missed the rapture. You are in now the great and terrible day of the Lord. And they're getting all sweaty because they know what's going to happen when the Antichrist appears. And, I mean, they're really getting sweaty about it. So Paul's writing. He says, look, don't, don't get screwed up about this to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, can you see, Paul's writing, they ended up with the opinion that they were in the tribulation. And Paul's writing, he says, no, you're not. And we'll see how Paul proves it. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. Now, can you see, if a Christian thinks they've ended up in the tribulation, they're deceived. Can you see? Paul says, don't be deceived. Now, look. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist. Now, look what Paul's saying. He says, look. It's not going to come until the Antichrist appears. Alright. Because when it does, you're going to have the Antichrist and he's going to come. Alright. And you'll all know that it's the Antichrist. And then you'll know that you're in the day of the Lord and that you've missed the rapture. Now, what he's arguing is quite simply this. They have been told that they're in the Great Tribulation. Paul is writing to them and he says, oh no, you're not. And he says, I can prove to you that you're not. He says, because if you're in the Great Tribulation, you will be able to see the Antichrist. And you know that the Antichrist isn't there. The Antichrist must come before the second coming and the establishing of the kingdom. Therefore, you know that you're not in the last days of the tribulation. So Paul is writing to them and he's saying you cannot possibly be in the tribulation. Because if you were, you would see that the Antichrist was around and that would have meant that you'd miss the rapture. And can you see the whole argument is assuming that the rapture comes first? 
Can you see? It's assuming that the rapture comes and then the Antichrist leading up to the second coming. So they think they're in the tribulation and Paul says, no you're not, because where's the Antichrist? He says, these things cannot happen until the Antichrist is revealed. The Antichrist isn't revealed, there's no way you can be in the great tribulation therefore. And the whole thing is argued, you haven't missed the rapture, you can't miss the rapture, because the rapture of the church is first. And can you see the whole assumption of these verses is that Paul is arguing and proving to them that they're not in the tribulation with the assumption that the rapture comes before the tribulation can start. If you go into 1 Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 9 now look at this, Paul says and it's Thessalonians that is dealing with all this, he says for God has not destined us for wrath or judgment but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you read through chapter 5, the context of this is the Great Tribulation. And the word hit salvation, we've seen it simply means to be delivered. And you find out what from, from the context. The Thessalonians are getting all screwed up in case they're in the Tribulation. Paul's assuring them they're not because the church doesn't go through the tribulation therefore how can they be in the tribulation if they're the church and what he does is he says God has not destined us for wrath and the tribulation is God's judgment being poured out but to obtain salvation can you see Paul says that we're the church we are delivered from the great tribulation he says rest assured you'll never go through it God has saved us from that. And of course the point is that there are going to be Christians alive on the earth just as, about the, just as the tribulation is about to start. Now Paul says they have no worries. They will be delivered from it. And how are they delivered? The rapture. The Lord takes them back to heaven so they don't have to go through it at all. If you go over into Titus. and Paul's letter to Titus and if you find chapter 2 and in verse 13 no verse 12 he says training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober upright and godly lives in this world awaiting our blessed hope and what is the hope of the church? the rapture the appearing of Jesus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice this, that the New Testament all the time exalts Christians to be looking forward to the appearing of Jesus. It does not exalt the church to be looking out for the rise of the Antichrist. Because if the church goes through the tribulation, and if the rapture is at the end of the, the end of the tribulation rather than at the start of it, then that would mean that we're going to be around when the Antichrist comes. But you see, the thing is, the Bible always exhorts people to be expecting the coming of Jesus, not the Antichrist, not the Great Tribulation, not all the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled in that seven years, but simply for the appearance of Jesus to come and get them. And this is why the church expected the rapture. Even 2,000 years ago, Paul the Apostle, Peter the Apostle, all of them were expecting it at any minute. Can you see? Now, the point is this, that because the early church knew 
that they weren't going to go through the tribulation. There was never any need for Paul to prepare churches for it. Now today we have preachers arising amongst us in the church who some of them, they have a tremendous burden to teach us in advance how to survive in the tribulation. Now let me ask you, why doesn't the Bible do that? Because the Bible assumes that you don't have to learn something you never have to put into practice. And in fact the early church were expecting the rapture at any minute because they knew that they didn't have to wait for the appearance of the Antichrist to know that the Lord was coming within the next three and a half years. They just knew that at any moment, and they didn't have the foggiest idea when, there was going to be the rapture and they were taken back to heaven. Let's just see this. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, and in verse 15, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians, sorry, 4, verse 15, Paul says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will be bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's talking about the rapture. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive... You see, Paul was expecting it in his own lifetime. He was quite open that he would still be alive when the rapture took place. He wasn't going around thinking, well, I mean, you know, it can't be yet because I can't see the Antichrist. <laughs> Can you see? He was assuming it could be at any moment. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51, also talking about the rapture, what does he say? He says, Lo, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Paul was assuming that he was going to be alive at the rapture. Why? Because he knew it could be at any moment. He wasn't having to wait for the Antichrist and all the prophecies to start gauging when it might be. He knew it could have been the very moment he finished writing that particular sentence in his letter. So can you see, there is no question of the Bible preparing the Christian church how to survive in the Great Tribulation. The assumption throughout is that we won't go through it. Go into James, the Epistle of James. And if you find chapter 5, and verse 8, he says, Be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, if the church is going to go through the tribulation, why isn't Peter urging them to prayer and fasting and learning how to live by faith and how to handle the Antichrist? Can you see... Because they knew that the church would never have to handle the Antichrist. The removal of the church to heaven would occur before the Antichrist, before the Great Tribulation ever even begins to start. And this is why, in contrast to the preachers today who are trying to sort of like teach us how to survive in case we end up in the Tribulation, this is why the Bible never does that. It never does it at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Well, I mean, what comfort is it being butchered by the Antichrist? I mean, for heaven's sake, can you see the whole thing is that the tribulation is one of the things that we have actually been saved from. It's part of our future salvation. Because we are part of the church of Jesus Christ, one of the things we have been saved from 
is the prospect of going through the Great Tribulation. We will not be there. We will be in heaven with the Lord. Okay. I just want to say something about the alternative teaching that you get. And I've already mentioned what it is. And it's that when Jesus comes to earth at the second coming to establish his coming, that the rapture is then. So what you've got, I'm, I've said to you, that what the Bible teaches is that the rapture, Jesus comes from heaven, he, he, he doesn't land on earth, he stays in outer space in the, or in the air, and we all zap up to join him, and then we all zap back to heaven. All right, And we're there for seven years, and then we come down seven years later with him at the second coming. So it's Jesus comes, and then we go back to heaven with him for seven years, and then come back to earth at the end of the tribulation. Now, the alternative teaching is that the rapture is at the second coming. It's all mixed in, <coughs> one event. And what happens is, Jesus comes at the second coming, and as, he la as he's coming in through the atmosphere, we are raptured, get glorified bodies, and then we come straight back down to earth with him. Can you see that we simply meet Jesus on his way down to establish the kingdom? Now, that's the alternative. Now, you see, the thing is this. We have seen tremendously clearly that the teaching of Jesus himself in John 14 means that that cannot possibly be correct. Because in the John 14 passage, we saw Jesus say to the disciples, I am going to come back for you, having prepared a place, and I'm going to take you back to my Father's house, that where I am, you may be also. We have seen Jesus telling them quite blatantly, unmistakably, that when he comes for them, they're going to go back to heaven. Whereas at the second coming, Jesus doesn't go back to heaven. He comes from heaven and he stays on earth. So can you see that any idea that the rapture is at the same time as the second coming, and that would mean that the church goes through the great tribulation, can you see that that cannot possibly be the case? It's not straight up and straight down. It's straight up and back to the place Jesus has prepared for us in heaven, only returning at the end of the Great Tribulation, seven years later, when Jesus lands on earth and establishes his kingdom. So we're seeing that you cannot possibly, that cannot be the case. But there's one other thing as well, which, in fact, there are lots of things. I've just picked out one or two. Things that make it totally impossible for the rapture to be at the same time as the second coming. We've already looked at the parable of the sheep and the goats. That when Jesus comes back to earth at the second coming, he separates all the believers from the unbelievers. He kills the unbelievers and the believers go through into the kingdom. And of course from all the Old Testament prophecies about the nature of the kingdom and Messiah ruling, they repopulate the earth while Jesus is ruling on the earth. Alright? And bear in mind that we know that when we get our glorified bodies, there is no more human procreation. Now the thing is this, if the rapture is before the tribulation, no problem, up we go to heaven, the world is re-evangelized by Israel, so there are believers and non-believers when we come back with Jesus seven years later. So the sheep and the goats problem is no 
no problem. The sheep and the goat's judgment is no problem. The believers repopulate the earth. They're ordinary mortals, okay? But if the rapture is at the same time as the second coming, if it's a straight up and straight down job, then the problem is this. As Jesus comes, he hits the air, because remember he lands on the Mount of Olives. As he hits the air, all the believers on the face of the earth get zapped up and they get their glorified bodies. Down they come, all right? Because everyone agrees you get your glorified body at the rapture. The disagreement is when the rapture happens, you see. So now, Jesus, he lands on earth and all the believers are there glorified, okay? Now, the problem is this. Who could possibly be the sheep at the sheep and the goat's judgment? Can you see? Because the sheep repopulate the earth. Now, if the rapture is at the second coming, all those believers who would have been the sheep and the goat's judgment, they've now got their glorified bodies because they got it when they met Jesus and came straight back down in a glorified body, which does not procreate. You see, there's no one left to repopulate the world. Can you see? And I mean, there are about 50 other reasons that I could give you for the rapture having to be before the tribulation starts on the earth. So, therefore... Be at rest. I mean, we might be long dead when the tribulation starts anyway. Paul is. Uh, he's been, been with the Lord and them for 2,000 years. He knew it could have been at any time, but, you know, the rapture hasn't happened yet. But the point is this. Just supposing that we are among that generation who are alive when the tribulation starts. Well, be comforted, because the very first thing that happens at the start of the tribulation is this. Jesus comes and he takes us all back to heaven with him, so we're not there during it. That is part of our salvation. There's no need to worry about these preachers who go around scaring God's people half to death. Telling them, make sure your faith is strong, because if you get the mark of the beast, you'll lose your salvation. And this puts fear into people. It's, it's totally wrong teaching. We will not face any of these things because we're not going to be there. By that time, we, when the tribulation starts, we have the rapture. Jesus comes from heaven. He brings back all our brothers and sisters who have been with him ever since they died. When he does that, when he gets into the air, all they, they get their glorified bodies, they're raised from the dead then all those of us believers who are alive at that point, we are taken up and we join them in the air and we get our glorified bodies. We then go back to Jesus, to heaven with Jesus. And while the seven years of the Great Tribulation and the Antichrist and God's judgment are raising on earth, we are in heaven with Jesus in our glorified bodies. And we only come back to earth at the end of the Great Tribulation with Jesus at the second coming. Next time we move on to answer the next question, well, okay, so what's happening to us during that seven years? While the tribulation is raging on earth, while we are with Jesus in heaven, what are we doing? What's happening to us? What do we get up to? What happens next? This is all part of our future salvation, part of what awaits us. So, one way or the other, whether you die tonight and go to be with the Lord, 
and then when the rapture happens you come with him and then get your glorified body and go back to heaven or whether you're alive at the rapture the point is this you've got seven years in heaven with Jesus in a glorified body what happens next if you want to know then next time same place same channel